preacher today. And my friend Mike Murphy, who has just like poured himself into this church ever since he and Anita arrived really from Chicago. Um, and you can read all about him in there. He's just such a great guy, and I can't wait for him to uh, give us the good word today. And this guy I've known since he was a baby, so this is awesome too. All right, good morning. Uh, I'm Brennan Carey. I'm a junior at Venice High. Uh, the scripture comes from the book of Amos, the first and fifth chapters. The word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judea, and in the, and in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures and the shepherds wither, and the top of Carmel dries up. Seek God and not evil, that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them in the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals. I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are you doing today? I think I'm doing all right. I'm not sure sometimes. You know, when Lori asked me to preach today, I was, uh, I was thrilled. Uh, Anita and I have grown to love this church and its people, and we really appreciate the ways we've been allowed to serve here since we've arrived. But I got to tell you, Lori, when I saw the scripture, I said, you are just setting me up. <laughs> you didn't want to do this one, did you? <laughs> Justice and righteousness. Amos, the prophet. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the word justice these days, and believe it or not, you can get into an argument. <laughs> it's a bit of a hot-button issue. Mention righteousness, and people wonder if you're going to judge their lifestyle, right? It's dangerous territory. And Amos's message is really not very easy to, to digest at all. But I think it's a necessary one in this conflicted day and age. Today we are going to focus on God's great desire for justice and righteousness to reign supreme, or as Amos says it, for justice to roll down like the waters, and righteousness like a never-ending, ever-flowing stream. And my fervent hope and prayer is that what is said today will help set the table for some really interesting conversations and perhaps even encourage some deeper personal soul-keeping. By the way, I think justice and righteousness is part of the heartbeat of this particular church. And that's why this message is so much fun to do, except when it's not going to be. <laughs> You'll find out. There's a story about a group of people, much like us, sitting on the bank of a river, and they're enjoying a picnic in each other's company. Then they heard cries for help. They noticed people were coming down the river, struggling to stay afloat, and they were in real danger. Uh, so they did what most of us would do, and they began to rescue these people. 
They warmed them around a fire and gave them food and drink, but the flow of people struggling in the river didn't stop. So somebody went into town to get more people to help rescue them, and they came, but still more people came floating by in need of rescue. Finally, someone spoke up and said, why don't a few of us go upriver and try to find out who's throwing them in? Maybe we could do something about that. This little tale is a framework for understanding our topic today. Good people see a need. They care enough in the moment to rescue those who are struggling. And then they care enough to ask the larger question about what in the world is going on upstream. Who's throwing these people in and what can we do about it? And that's righteousness and justice working together. Now, in Amos's time, the people of God just kept picnicking. They didn't care if people were being thrown into the river. And God said, this, <laughs> this is a problem. And so God stirred the heart of Amos, and a prophet was born. A prophet is a person used by God to point out our deficiencies and to challenge us to live beyond our preferences. Some high school and junior high parents, uh, kids are saying probably, boy, that sounds an awful lot like parents. <laughs> Maybe so. Many people even today have a prophetic voice and call people to live righteously and justly. Kay Warren, who's the, the wife of the author Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, took a trip to Africa, and it wasn't one of those five-star safaris. No, she was walking into villages where both adults and children were dying from AIDS, and help for them was minimal. She cradled the crying children in her arms and held the hands of the dying adults, praying for them. She wanted to rescue them all, and she said, the whole experience wrecked me. And when she returned, she began to speak up to just about anyone she met about the conditions she encountered, the enormity of the need, and challenging people to do something about it, to help rescue those in acute need, and go out, then go upriver to discover the source of the problem, to use their standing, their clout, their money as a force for good. And it was a challenge to those who heard, heard it was a challenge to everyone who heard her. The challenge was to move out of their comfortable lifestyles and recover their life by living and giving for the sake of others. She lamented one day, I don't get invited to a lot of dinner parties anymore. <laughs> and such is the lot of the prophetic voice. They picnic alone. God has a history of challenging people and nations who take pride in their deficiency and who are absurdly protective of their preferences. Needing to get our attention, he uses prophets as his megaphone, and they dare to demand that we think about things we'd rather not be thoughtful about and live in ways that will demand sacrifice. It's worth noting that justice and righteousness are often linked together throughout Scripture. They're like two sides of the same coin. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Justice is certainly about righting wrong. It is about putting people in jail who break laws. But it's also doing what's necessary to restore them 
for the wholeness of life. Biblical justice and righteousness is very holistic. It's about generosity and it's about social concern, especially towards those, and this is throughout Scripture, those who have a little influence and clout. You know, we know we're on the right path towards being righteous and just people when our focus is on becoming more and more like Jesus, who in word and deed called us to live for the sake of others. The righteous and the just are always marked by a deep desire to do the next right thing in the right way, with the right attitude and the right motivation. Amos was telling his people that their grade for being righteous and just was a failing grade, (laughs) that God was not happy with them, that all their religious activity was just mumbo-jumbo to his ears, that he was tired of them taking advantage of those on the margins of society, that he was tired of them abandoning abandoning their responsibility to those who had little, and that God wanted them to shape up and replace the nonsense of their lives with righteousness and justice. And my guess is right about then, invitations to go out to dinner stopped for Amos. Question we have is this. The question I have, do we see someone like Amos as having relevance for our world? Or was he just speaking to a world long ago I mean, aren't we already righteous? Aren't we already just? He, he, he couldn't be calling us, could he? You know, to seek good and not evil. Certainly God couldn't be calling us into account, could he? Uh, uh, surely God wouldn't send a prophet into our presence to get our attention, not us. Oh, maybe the Methodists, the Episcopalians, got a Southern Baptist here and a Mennonite. Yeah, maybe them, but not us, right? Not Church of the Palms. And that's something we always have to wrestle with. I've been wrestling with it for a long time. I came to the conclusion that I I had to face a hard truth And the truth is this, just because the rules and order of our world work for me, it doesn't necessarily mean that those same rules and order work well for everyone. Many people still experience this world as being filled with injustice and unrighteousness, and others still carry the wounds of injustices done unto them by unrighteous people. And the question is, are we willing to heal their wounds, to be a voice for the voiceless, at the very least to listen to their stories? Just recently, an African-American friend, within the last week, I helped bring him to Christ, my Young Life Club, was seated on a crowded plane. He's 50 years old now, businessman. The only two seats left in the entire plane were in his row. Must have been Southwest, right? (laughs) The late boarders were getting on, and a couple got on. They looked at the seats, 
and they looked at my friend Dwayne, and they decided to deplane rather than sit next to him. They did it quietly. There's no fuss, no mess. But Dwayne says, whoa, I guess racism isn't over. The plus side, he said, he's a big man, is that he was able to stretch out during the flight. <laughs> but you know, it's too bad the couple didn't stretch themselves by overcoming whatever it was they needed to overcome. Twain will readily admit that things have gotten better over the years, but that couple on the plane reminded him that the struggle for his full acceptance in parts of our world is not over. And I don't have to worry about that. But he does. Tomorrow morning, I, I have a monthly phone call that I make to a friend uh, in Chicago. His name is Bruce. Uh, Bruce lived for five years in the back seat of a car, winter and summer. He was addicted in all kinds of different ways. He wandered from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. Now he's clean now, he's met Christ, he's a very good man, and he's got a job working with addicts and the homeless. And with a voucher, he is able to afford an efficiency apartment, 300 square feet, in a safer neighborhood. Last time we talked, he said, Mike, I, I'm afraid that voucher is going to be taken away from me. And then he, then he says, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to have to go back from wandering from one place to another day after day? He says, maybe I'm being punished for past sins. He wonders if those with bigger voices might be willing to stand up for him and others to speak truth to power. He wonders if people look at the hand up he's getting as just being a handout. I don't have to worry about such things. Neither do most of you, but he does. Bruce experiences the world differently than we do. I met a man named Jerry one afternoon, and this was one of the most striking things that I think uh, has happened to me in my life. I was helping to co-facilitate. A lot of my work was in inner city Chicago. Let's see examples. I was helping to co-facilitate a workshop for homeless men. I was in a room with 30 men. I was the only white man in the room. That was usually the case. And during the workshop, I said something, and Jerry, this brand new guy, just looked at me with more disdain than anybody has ever looked at me before in their life, even more than Anita has at times. <laughs> and Jerry said, what the blank do you know about being black, homeless, and poor? Now, my first impulse, <laughs> usually it's always my impulse, is to get all defensive, wanting to defend myself, wanting to justify my being there. Uh, but for once in my life, I didn't. Over the weeks, I found out more about Jerry. Jerry grew up in Mississippi, in Ku Klux Klan territory. He watched his white men beat friends and family just for the fun of it. He couldn't count the number of times he was chased and threatened. He saw someone being lynched. 
When he was old enough to work, he worked for white men who treated him as a non-person. Is it any wonder that he developed an attitude? When I met him, he had just lost a job, his family, he had experienced a lifetime of trauma, and by his own admission, a lifetime of trouble, which at times he brought on himself. I rep represented, just by the way I looked and the position I held, everything he detested. I was the visible expression of his worst nightmares. And I wondered how deep his wounds go. How deep those wounds that were created so early in this life. A young boy surrounded by injustice and in righteousness, unrighteousness, now as an adult man can't escape the clutches of those memories. He saw me as his enemy. And as I listened to his story and endured his continued accusations, he allowed me to become an ally. And Jerry became my teacher. Just like Kay Warren, these stories wreck me. And sometimes I don't know what to do, but, I, but it leads me to another unsettling question. Do I really give a rip? <laughs> or am I content to isolate myself and just count my blessings? And Amos answers that question for us, doesn't he? He says, no. You have to give a rip. That's God's agenda. I want righteousness and justice to flow out of you. And I got to tell you, when we open ourselves to that possibility, which you already have, I know you have, the world changes, and it changes right before our eyes. I have another friend, very wealthy guy. He was a derivatives trader. I'm not even sure what that is. And he explained it to me at length one night. He's asked the speaker at a conference whether he could make money off providing housing for the poor. And the speaker said, of course, people are doing that all the time. But if you want to do it right, you got to do it with a sense of justice. So my friend did all his work. He quit his job, acquired investors, and he began to buy buildings from slumlords. And he says, I love walking around the buildings and knocking on the doors, introducing himself as the new owner. And he always tells people, when, as soon as they answer the door, he says, I'm the new owner, and I got some news for you. We're going to have to adjust your rent. And as soon as he says that, they, they go, oh, get away from me, get away from me. You know, I don't want you here. He says, yeah, we're going to have to, instead of paying $900 a month, you're only going to have to pay 600 But you're going to have to let me in. Uh, a few times this month because we're going to fix your place up so it looks really nice because right now it's not good enough for you. And by the way, I think I'm going to have some jobs down the road. And then down the road, if this all works out, I want a condo. I want to make this into a condo and I want you to own the place you're living in. I gave a talk at a school one time about bullying. Two girls came up to me and said, that at every lunchtime, they look for kids being bullied, new to the school or sitting alone, and invite them to sit at their table. They changed the world. It's the mom who wanted to know why her son invited everyone in his class to his birthday except for three students. And he said, well, nobody likes them. <laughs> and she said, we will, and insisted that they be invited. 
A young man I know named Maurice, who lives in a poverty-stricken neighborhood, started college this fall in his home state. A ministry donor, someone like you, wondered, wondered 10 years ago why kids in his neighborhood didn't know anything about science, and he started what became an award-winning robotics team. Maurice was his worst student, and then he became his best. He became captain of the team and a role model for others, and now he's earned a full scholarship in biology to a Big Ten university. That donor made a difference. And a friend, while on a mission trip with World Vision, yearned for people in Africa to use their agricultural land in ways that would increase both yield and quality. He wanted to do something about feeding people who had little, and he prayed about it. Within the next 18 months, he became the president of the, president of the third largest agrochemical company in the world with a tremendous freedom to partner with developing countries and organizations like World Vision. He's changing lives. And then there's, this, this, there's these people at a church in Sarasota who wondered why so many kids go to school with ratty backpacks and little or no school supplies. And they said, we can do something about this. And we can take it a step further and we can start to tutor them in our contemporary worship space. Here's what it is, folks. Righteousness and justice, it's good people doing the right thing, fueled by a yearning to even the odds for those who find themselves on the outside looking in. They reach a point where they had to discover why God was allowing a holy discontent to take deep root into their lives. And it was for a reason. God wanted them to be difference makers. But to step into that role, it required courage. Amelia Earhart once said, courage is the price life exacts for granting peace. Because it takes courage to quit a well-paying job. It takes courage to say no to a child, right? It takes courage to go from worst student to college scholarship guy. It takes courage to start a science program in an under-resourced community. It takes courage for junior high students to stand up for those who are being bullied. It takes courage to rally a church to action. And it takes courage to pray a big prayer on behalf of others. Just like it took courage for a shepherd like Amos to accept the mantle of prophet and face down the citizens of his land and declare that justice and righteousness are the only things, the only things acceptable to God and being addicted to their preferences and being proud of their deficiencies was a non-starter in the kingdom of God. A little angel approached Jesus one day in heaven and asked Jesus, what's your plan for carrying on your work? And Jesus smiled in that way he does. And he brought her to the edge of a cloud in heaven. And this certain cloud, I don't know if you know this or not, you can see all of human history. And Jesus pointed down and asked the little angel what she was seeing. She replied, I, I see a bunch of people listening to somebody talk. And Jesus said, no, no, it's more than that. The, those are the people of Church of the Palms in Sarasota, Florida. 
they think they live in paradise. <laughs> Where do they see this? <laughs> the angel questioned him, saying, but I asked you about the plan for carrying on your work. And Jesus just chuckled, and he said, they are my plan. And the angel earnestly said, what if your plan doesn't work? Jesus said, it's got to. It's the only one I got. <laughs> Say this with me. I'm the plan. Say it a little bit louder. I'm the plan. Point to somebody in the right and left and say, you're the plan. <laughs> Everybody together, we're the plan. We're the plan. That's the message of the prophets. God wants to use you to accomplish his purposes. And when we say yes, the invitation will come. And someday we're going to find ourselves at a dinner with others who have declared the same. And we will have the privilege of watching justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? Never, ever. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have here to be your people, to do your will. Lord, help us to ask the further question. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to have that great desire to be men and women of righteousness and justice. We pray this all in your name. And all God's people said, amen.